Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Connery, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. In today's episode, we welcome Mark Hauser, attorney, cannabis industry advisor, and author of Cannabis Musings, a weekly newsletter offering commentary on cannabis business, law, and capital markets since 2018. We spoke with Mark about the important conversations happening at the federal level regarding cannabis policy. From the Safer Banking Act to rescheduling to the 2023 Farm Bill, we break it down so you don't have to. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey there, we are back, and we are excited to share our conversation with Mark Hauser. For years now, Mark's widely read Cannabis Musings newsletter has been one of our go-to resources for perspective on cannabis policy, law, and finance. On a weekly-ish basis, Mark unpacks a key topic, putting it in perspective with the bigger picture so that we can more easily understand it and put it to good use. Thankfully, he always does it with a dash of humor and an undercurrent of irreverence. We highly recommend subscribing to it on Substack and have included a link in the show notes to make it easy for you. Mark is recognized as one of the leading advisors to the U.S. cannabis industry. Prior to starting his cannabis consulting business, Hauser Advisory, he worked as an attorney for 25 years, advising clients and colleagues on billions of dollars of business transactions worldwide. He's been working in the trenches of the cannabis industry since 2018 and has been named by peer-ranked Chambers USA and Legal 500 as, quote, a leading lawyer who knows the industry and players through and through. Mark is also an adjunct professor at Northwestern University School of Law, co-teaching cannabis law, business, and policy. We originally were going to promote this episode as one for cannabis industry professionals, but really, it is just as important for elected officials, public servants, and you, the consumer. Why, you may ask? Because ultimately, policy decisions affect your access to cannabis, where you can buy it, the products that are available, the prices you pay, and your payment options. And let's get real. As long as cannabis is federally illegal and only available on a state-by-state basis, People are still being prosecuted and or going to jail every day for selling or consuming this plant. So if you are not satisfied with your access, upset about the social justice implications, and are motivated to do something about it, the information here will better equip you for those conversations with your community leaders and legislators. And on a lighter note, if you simply want to better understand and support your friend or family member who works in the industry, The next time they start ranting or even crying about the financial challenges of running a cannabis business in the current environment, you can pull up a chair, put an arm around them, and wholeheartedly say, yeah, 280E sucks, doesn't it? And you'll know exactly what you're talking about. That will be a good feeling for the both of you. All right, let's get into it with Mark Hauser. All right, well, here we go. Mark Hauser, welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to talk about uh, nice. the industry. Cool. Well, we're psyched to have you here. Shane Lynn, who's our executive producer, has been a fan for a long time. Uh, he's always was bouncing me the Cannabis Musings newsletter every week, being like, you got to read this, you got to read this. This guy talks about the cannabis industry, you know, the the politics and the lava and a really interesting and and as you say, irreverent way. (laughs) Um, And so we want to kind of dive into some of the big topics that are being talked about on the federal level. Because it's actually exciting that we have so many topics actually all at play at one time. You know, we can go through these droughts where it's not being looked at at all. Yeah. So, um, So before we get into those, could you just give us a little bit of background on 
Cannabis Musings, which is your newsletter and your consultation business and, you know, your law background and, and why you jumped into to cannabis um, in 2018. Thanks. I, first off, I, I, you know, I'm thrilled to be here and I love talking about uh, the industry. Uh, and there's, you're right. I mean, we, you know, after a, a sort of a real dearth of, of, of interesting stuff at the federal level, we've got a lot going on. I started out in cannabis about six years ago. Uh, I was, until last summer, I was a deal and capital markets lawyer for about 24 years. Uh, I spent most of my time practicing in Chicago after graduating from Northwestern Law, uh, and 15 years of which I spent working as in-house lawyer for a Chicago-based billionaire, getting deals done, mm. doing wacky stuff. We moved out to Napa, California uh, to avoid, to finally get rid of Chicago weather in our lives. And I started to uh, do a little bit of work in the cannabis industry. And at the time, I found there were very few seasoned deal lawyers with a lot of experience in, in transactions practicing in the space. So I started learning about it. And I found that there was this, this need in this niche. And it was, it was soon after... California had approved REC. Um, so, you know, things were really changing. In, in, and to me, that was sort of a, a tipping point on, you know, as far as the state, uh, state programs, because uh, California is such a big state. It really sort of created a lot more momentum for what was to come. It was around that time I was still working at a small boutique law firm and I started up my Cannabis Musings, which is my newsletter you mentioned, and doing it for over five years now. And it's you can find it on Substack. And it's just sort of a weekly-ish commentary on something that happened in the industry. Um, my take on it with sort of a legal-ish sort of tinge to it, but uh, but I try to not make it a you know law-focused because I know that lawyers are boring. And what lawyer's writer is very boring. Yes. Um, Your newsletter is not. <laughs> ah, well, I appreciate that. Yes. I try to make it, you know, readable, just sort of bite-sized, um, but trying to put something into context, whether it's something federal policy, state policy, um, some sort of transaction, or um, or just something weird happening. And just try to explain it and understand it, because uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of folks who just sort of aggregate the news, but I'm trying to dig into one or two things that, and it's free, by the way, I should yes. mention that as well. Yeah. But so about a year in to moving to California, I moved to a large global law firm because uh, I couldn't really get much work from working at a wine-focused law firm in Napa. <laughs> and I uh, started working at Reed Smith uh, to build their cannabis practice uh, came to run the group and got, and we started representing MSOs, startups, investors, lenders, REITs, ancillaries, investment banks, everybody in the industry and yeah. touching it. Uh, but last summer I quit because I was tired after 24 years of being very unhappy being a which is which is could be the whole subject of another podcast. Uh, but I had spent you know I've now been spending all this time, you know, solely focused on the cannabis industry. So I started up an, an advisory business focused, you know, aimed at helping folks with high level uh, transactions and problems and macro problem solving, uh, whether it's working through a workout with creditors or deciding on a path to take with a capital raise or an, a merger as well as just industry engagement and helping folks understand how to approach the industry. Um, and I've been doing that for the past year and helping, helping different kinds of companies out. And I continue to write my musings on a weekly basis. Great. Awesome. Well, let's dive into some of those topics that you mm -hmm. have been talking about. You know, the first couple do have a lot to do with capital and banking. Uh, access to capital is a huge issue in the industry because of federal prohibition. Mm -hmm. And so one of the hot topics is the Safer Bank Act, um, yeah. which uh, used to be the Safe Bank <laughs> Banking Act. And it's safer now partially because it came out of the Senate, right? I mean, we've been dealing with the, a version of the Safe Banking Act for almost what, 
10 years? Yeah. Has it been that long that we've been trying to <laughs> pass some sort of bill? Um, about. Yeah. And so can you give us a little bit of a, a history? What are the high points here? Like, what, is the, what did the Safe Banking Act try to do and never was able to, to mm-hmm. happen? Um, but now Schumer got it through in the Senate as the Safer Banking Act. And has it changed much? Is it watered? Has it been just watered down? Or has they been just trying to get the same things through <laughs> all this time? And they finally did? Like, give us a little bit yeah. perspective there. Well, and to, to be clear, it actually hasn't passed the Senate yet. Um, the Safer right. Act got out of committee at the in the Senate, which is you know, which is a big deal. But yeah, hasn't actually gone to the floor yet for for a vote. But so safe and safer, they're pretty much the same thing. Uh, it's the same language. Safer is the same language in safe, but except for how banks report uh, to to. Um, to the government, and which is the R in, I believe, the, if I remember correctly, the R is for reporting. Oh, um, okay. But so they added that just to sort of make it a little different. But at heart, the Safe Safer Banking Act hasn't really changed much in the 10 years that Congress, somebody in Congress has tried to get it enacted. Mm. Uh, it provides a a safe harbor for banks, um, meaning that that if a bank, and by bank, I'm talking about a federally chartered uh, depository institution, so basically most banks that have FDIC insurance, if if a bank does business with a plant-touching company, the bank will not lose its, its federal charter will not be in trouble for money laundering and can generally provide the same types of services that it can to any other business, you know, treasury, uh, loans, uh, and the like. Uh, mm-hmm. It also does the same for insurance companies, which is, you know, it, it's sort of a smaller issue, but but is the same thing that, you know, it, it, cannabis companies all can get insurance, but it's extremely expensive, particularly yeah, yeah, DNO insurance, directors and officers coverage. Um, and so, you know, in theory, that would help bring the cost down because the risk to the insurance companies should be lower. Um, you also have a provision that there it provides protection for ancillary businesses from um, money laundering risk. Uh, so, you know, to step back, if I am a service provider and I do business with a plant touching company, and I take a dollar in payment from that plant touching company, I'm money laundering under federal right. law. None of the, I should clarify, I, even though I don't practice law anymore, I'm still a lawyer. And so I should say that none of this is legal advice. Exactly. But generally, <laughs> if I take a dollar from a plant touching company, I'm, I'm money laundering. And so, right. and that's a problem. You know, it's it's the risk is of being prosecuted for that is is very, very, very small these days, Mm -hmm. um, as we've seen, you know, because the the federal government by as a matter of grace is allowing all this these activities to occur for plant, you know, for state licensed companies. Um, But it's still, you know, but it doesn't eliminate the fact that. It could happen. It's an illegal activity, and they yeah, could yeah. shut it down tomorrow. Yeah. And so it, it provides, you know, and banks in particular are highly, highly regulated organizations. So they 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 have just been highly reluctant. I mean, there's, it's not there are banks out there that do do business with plant touching companies, but it's it's very very challenging, and it creates risk for banks from a regulatory yeah. perspective. Yeah. This eliminates that. Yeah. Well, just um, to give like a real world, like an example, or even, you know, to talk about, to give it some context, you know, I think everybody in the industry understands how hard it is to get a bank account. <laughs> you know, yeah. people who aren't in the industry are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, you don't have a bank account or you, you know, you lost your bank or you don't have a credit card, you can't get a loan. Like, yeah, you know, we can't do any of that stuff. Um, but I was even just reading this morning, I think FinCEN came out with a report that, I don't know, something like 11% of banks in the country yeah. are doing 
business with cannabis companies. Mm-hmm. And then maybe like another 220 credit unions. And so yeah. that's not a lot, you know, of banks. And, mo- and all that's those right. banks, they're just doing deposit accounts. That's right? right. So right now we don't have, you know, access to loans or credit mm-hmm. or anything like that. And the cost of banking is super high as yes. well. And yes. so we've been in the industry for 10 years. Um, and we were fortunate enough, like we lost our first bank, actually. Um, we were super excited to get a bank when it first opened. And then they decided to, they were a, a local charter and then they went to a federal charter. So they dropped us. And then Vermont State and uh, Vermont State Employees Credit Union decided to bank with the cannabis industry here. And at the time mm-hmm. it was just medical cannabis. So there were only like three players really. Yeah. And, you know, they charged us 50 bucks a month for an account. But then mm-hmm. they started to, in the last couple of years, um, they brought in an auditing company in order mm-hmm. to ensure that all the money going in that account was trackable <laughs> to our inventory right. and our sales. And so, you know, we would have the bank come visit us four times a year. Mm-hmm. And we started to get charged a percentage for every transaction that went in and out of our account. That's yeah. a lot, like one it's to two percent, you know. And so that's where we left. And now when we're, we're applying now for a license in the retail market, and there's two banks that are working with Vermont, with c- cannabis companies right now. There were three. One dropped out because the, it was just too much of an expense. They didn't have the resources in order to be able to do that auditing of the accounts to protect themselves. Oof. And then the VSCCU, they're, they're not charging a high fee, but they are going to charge us 2% for everything yeah. that goes in and out. And the other bank is going to charge retail accounts $1,500 a month. <sighs> Just to have an account, a right. deposit account. You yeah. know, that's eighteen thousand dollars a year. That's right. You know, and, then, and so and then they sit and then they get to sit on your cash and invest that, you know, in in overnight at you know four percent. So they're right. also getting exactly. You know, with, that's what this will help. In th- it should help. And right. you know, it, it's the credit unions, if you noted, as you've noted, have really sort of stepped in to fill this void. Because they're not federally chartered, so they're they don't have that same regulatory risk. But the credit unions also realized that they still need to be maintaining best practices to 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 deal with uh, the fact that they're you know they're 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 dealing with a federally illegal business, and so yeah. you know so they they have to balance that sort of problem. But then you know, but then they layer on these massive costs that to, to get that done. Right. And so, and, you know, and of course that goes, you know, that gets pushed down to, to, to the operator. Oh um, yeah. Margins are it, really small. Then the customer yeah, has to pay for it. That's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly. Now I, you know, I suspect that if we see safe pass, you know, you'll start to see many more, I, I would expect smaller, you know, local banks to be stepping into the fold to do this. Um, you know, it, it's it's probably still going to be more expensive than, uh, you know, a regular, you know, a non-cannabis checking account or banking mm-hmm. account because they they they're still probably going to want to put these kind of, um, you know, this kind of auditing and procedures into place. But you know, the hope is that it. it the competition will decrease those costs. Right. Um, you know, I liken it to, you know, that it's sort of like you go and um, you go to a venue to rent out for an event and the chair covers cost 10 bucks a chair, but if it's a wedding, it's 20 bucks a chair, mm-hmm. you know? So it's the same thing. It's just, yes. you know, they kind of, they know that you've got this problem that it's cannabis. And so we can charge a lot more a because we have higher costs, but B because there really aren't any other choices. Yeah. Um, sure. But you know, I think it's important though to understand what safe doesn't do, safer doesn't do, because there's a lot of confusion on its face. Safe would not um, does not allow for credit cards, um, which is probably the biggest problem for the industry. I mean, you know, it's safe is interesting and because it, it is, it's solving a problem that sort of half exists now, you know, 10 years ago, 
when SAFE was introduced, there really was no banking for the right. industry. Now, you know, as you know, you know, banking is extremely expensive, but it's there, mm-hmm. you know, for most operators in most states. You can get a bank account. You can do ACH transactions. So, you know, what, what SAFER is doing is it, it should make it a lot cheaper. And, you know, and there is a an argument that it will also do more to protect companies, uh, dispensaries from, from theft and robbery, uh, because they won't have to have as much cash on hand. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, I, I, I'm not, I, that I'm not trying to dismiss the, 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 the problems that have existed with, with robberies and violence that have occurred because of, you know, the, the fact that these dispensaries are sitting on a lot of cash. Exactly. But, you know, but at the same time, it, the problem is, is that it doesn't solve the credit card problem. So if you don't solve the credit card problem, dispensaries are still going to sit on cash. Right. And, or, the, or the debit card problem, right? Or the debit like card problem, yes, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. the debit cards run on the same, you know, rails. systems or credit card rails as the, as the, as regular credit cards. And right. credit card merchants, City, uh, sorry, uh, Visa, MasterCard, they're not covered by the Safe Banking Act or SAFER. Um, they're, they're not considered a depository institution. Okay. And so that's why, uh, similarly, stock exchanges are not covered by that either. So, you know, so this won't necessarily lead, guarantee that uh, publicly traded cannabis companies can start listing their stocks on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. Um, Now, maybe the exchanges get more comfortable with the risk and maybe the credit card companies, as well as the payment companies like PayPal or Square, maybe it becomes a signal, uh, you know, with and potentially also with with rescheduling that we'll talk about, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this all sort of de-risks them a little bit more, and they feel comfortable that okay, well, you know, it's still federally illegal, but it's less of a problem, right. and so we're going to start allowing our you know our payments systems to to include cannabis. Um, you know, I mean, I noted that Square just entered into it is going to start. Uh, providing services up in Canada, yeah, uh, you know, there it's legal, so you don't have the same problem. But it, you know, the, it's it's another example of the, these big sort of service companies that every other business is used to using. Um, they want to get into this space, but of they course, yeah. but they won't but they step can't. into it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they can't. So the court, you know, it's 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 still open whether you know whether they would be comfortable after this, but. But to be clear, you know, Safer doesn't give them the same protection that it does to banks. And so that's a disconnect. Where does it go now? I mean, so it, it did just get out of committee. Yeah. And so now it's going to go to a full vote in the Senate sometime soon. Yes. I don't know. I don't know what the, yeah, when is it slated to do that? Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's, I I think that Schumer, I, I, I apologize. I don't know off the top of my head. Schumer wants to get it done has said he wants to get it to the um, to the uh, to the floor of the Senate. I believe in the next month or so. Nice. Uh, we'll see if that happens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, we've been uh, we've been just narrowly avoided a shutdown for one thing. Yes, yeah. There's kind of a few <laughs> other issues out there. The war going on in that's Ukraine. Right. Well, that's um, the thing is is I think you know it, it's remarkable that stuff like this is getting this far. I mean, exactly. you know, from a macro perspective, it's amazing that we're having these conversations that, 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 that rescheduling is a possibility now. And the Congress is considering bills that do something that actually benefits the industry. I mean, these are all remarkable changes over the past five years. Even I if agree. none of this occurs, you know, I, I feel like the narrative continues to change, but it's still, it's still, we've been burned so many times with expectations about the government, you know, actually doing something for us. Mm -hmm. I think I I never get my hopes up too much that any of this is actually going to occur. Um, I keep my expectations very low. Yes. At every level of government, you know, (laughs) that's exactly right. I guess the thing to to know coming into this is that, Hey, it actually, passed the full house like multiple times 
but the Senate always wouldn't take it up for a vote, right? That's so right. we're in the flip right now. And so what is your thoughts about the Senate actually passing it and then what happens to it when it goes to the House? Because we have different people in power now than we did before. And where, how come this got passed? Well, it hasn't gotten past uh, our buddy down there, Mitch, in Kentucky. He's been a roadblock yes. all these years. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting because McConnell in the past has used safe as a cudgel. Um, yes. You know, when, when Pelosi would try to introduce it or or attach it to a spending bill um mcconnell has basically shamed the democrats for it um and it always got withdrawn because it was it was kind of an easy easy way to be used as a political tool but it is also a good example of just how federal policy federal cannabis policy is just so different um and it's an easy it's an easy way to, uh, you know, to sort of score points um, because it's playing to that, that base. Um, But it's, you know, he hasn't really said much about it in part because, you know, he doesn't really, he can't really do much about it. So he's been very quiet about it, but yeah, whether this then, assuming it passes the Senate, which is still not totally clear, because it's not clear whether there are indeed 60 votes. I, the best sort of, and the best I've seen is that there are 59 senators who have publicly announced that they're for it. Oh, that's um, there are folks who, who say there are more than 60 votes, but I've never actually seen, you know, nobody's shown. manifest. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's come publicly that 60th vote. But let's say it does pass the Senate, then, you know, whether it passes the House is unclear. Yeah. Um, because you don't have, uh, you know, a democratic majority. Yeah. So we've got a little yeah, bit of crazy town in the house. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing what's going on. And so yeah. who, who knows? Yeah. But, and that's why it's so important to get these things done when you have the right people in place, you know? And I think that's, what's like so hard about the what? cannabis, as you were saying, you know, it's, it's easy to push people to speak to the base and push these buttons. And so, you know, that's right. Uh, the fear is like, hey, you know, if we don't have another Democrat, you know, well, who knows who's going to win next year? <laughs> you know, and that's so exactly right. That's why we've, we're fighting against that, too. It's got to be full steam ahead whenever we that's have right. the conversation front of mind. Yeah. And, and I think that's why it's so interesting and, and important that we've got that rescheduling is is a possibility now, because that is that is a process that's a hundred percent in the executive branch and the you know the only thing that congress could do is stop it by passing a law saying that thou shalt not reschedule cannabis to schedule three we'll be right back after a short break Hey there, it's me again with a friendly reminder to follow our lovely little show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're really digging what you hear, like the show, review it, and share it with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. Take care, and thanks for listening. let's talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's been a schedule one drug all since 1970. You want to kind yes. of go into like, it's basically the scheduling has to do with medical benefit and uh, risk of abuse with schedule one being no medical benefit and uh, high risk of abuse. And so that's where cannabis was put in 1970. Right. Um, right. I think you know, do you want to add anything more to that? And now, you know, I mean, Biden, which I think was pretty impressive, you know, that mm-hmm. that this happened in less than a year. You know, he asked uh, Health and Health and Human Services to reconsider it and his attorney general to reconsider it. And they got the job done in like nine months, which I think that's right. That's right. Good. I think it was October of last year is yeah. when the when the, the mandate 
Um, and yeah, in, in the past, you know, Health and Human Services, the very high level, the way the process works is um, is the DEA is is tasked with with considering um, rescheduling, and it, it looks to HHS to prepare a report as to the you know the health benefits and risks, uh, you know, just at heart. And in the past, Health and Human Services is concluded including the recent past, that there are no stated medical benefits and the risks, you know, remain high. I mean, I, I'm sort of, I'm sort of summarizing there, but that's generally what it, what it concluded. Um, but Biden sent this, you know, message that, uh, you know, to look to rescheduling it to Schedule 3. And this time around, Health and Human Services came out with a report that concludes that there are indeed medical benefits to cannabis and that the risk is, you know, is, is apparently acceptable. Now we have nobody seen this report. Um, so we don't know exactly what it says. Um, there's a lawyer out there who's actually sued is his filed a FOIA lawsuit to try to get a copy of the report, a guy named Matthew Zorn. Um, so, you know, someday we'll act, we may actually see this report, but it basically told, it recommended a rescheduling to Schedule 3 to the DEA. DEA now has to consider, is required by law to consider this rescheduling. Um, there's no specific time period uh, because this isn't a new drug. Um, if it were a new drug, it would be 90 days, but it's not. Yeah. Um so they don't have any deadline. They can take no, as long as they want to. They could take this. as long as they want. But but given the HHS, you know, came back fairly within a couple of months, um, you know, it, the feeling um, is that it, this isn't going to be a years long process. There's clearly some sort of political pressure to make a decision here. And so, you know, chances are that the DEA is going to come up with something fairly soon. And the big issue is um is is this in, is this international treaty uh, called the single convention um which is a an international drug intervention and you know anti-trafficking uh convention through the united nations that where all the signatory countries basically agree to you know to various anti you know anti-drug trafficking uh, right. uh laws and allowing for uh, recreational or adult, or, sorry, adult use or, or medical use is violates this convention. Um, at the same time, you know, Canada re- uh, legalized and it was a signatory to the convention and nothing happened. Uh, and even the and they state, export, right? That's right. I mean, Canada they, exports they, they to export. Europe. Yeah. Or... And, um, you know, Germany is about to go, uh, uh, possibly go to adult use, and that would yeah. be a problem. And you've also got even the fact that the U.S. allows state programs to continue violate, violates this convention. And so, huh. but it's still a you know. It's, but the interesting thing is, it gets it implicates the State Department, and so there's conversations going on within the executive branch to see you know to sort of determine whether. Um, you know, moving to schedule three and violating the, the 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 single convention is 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 a problem. Um, but so it, it's a it's hard to sort of gameplay whether whether that you know whether they decide it doesn't matter. Um, but it's a real you know it's a real problem. It's a real issue that the government needs to take into account. But if they do that, then you know, and, and cannabis is rescheduled to schedule three. Um, it is, you know, it has a handful of imp- of direct implications. Yeah, let's hear it, them. Yeah, so it means that 280E, uh, Section 280E of the tax code no longer applies to cannabis sale, cultivation sales and the like. Um, we will all be dancing on that day. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and that, you know, that that affects everybody's bottom line. It's, yeah. it's a huge boost to the industry in a financial, you know, on a, on a financial level. Yeah. Do you want to uh, just it, speak to what it is briefly? Because I'm sure some of our listeners don't know. Yeah. Basically, there's a provision of the tax code, 
Section 280E, uh, that says that if you, uh, that anybody who is involved in trafficking in a Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 controlled substance has to pay, still has to pay their taxes, but their, their federal income taxes, but they, uh, they're not allowed to take operating deductions except for the cost of goods sold. Um, this stems, this came out in about 1980, it stems from a tax court case from the late 70s, where somebody who was a, a, a bona fide drug trafficker, I mean, trafficking in, you know, in all sorts of Schedule I um, substances like heroin and cocaine, and cocaine yeah. um, was brought up on tax, you know, for not paying their taxes. And they argued that they should be able to deduct their operating costs and like, like the cost of scales to weigh the drugs, um, things like that, you know, and, and you know, it's funny whenever, well, I'm sorry, Andy, but whenever I hear that story, I'm just like, well, why weren't they being arrested? And they're talking about paying oh, yeah, their yeah. taxes. Like, I just don't oh, even get that part, you know? I, I, <laughs> I think it was just pouring salt in the wound. I, yes. I believe they were actually arrested, but, the, yeah. you know, the, t- the federal government also wanted their fair share. Yeah, they sorry, did. The, the IRS They'll take wanted it. Fair share. Exactly. It's hilarious. And so, and the tax court agreed, which is even funnier. Yeah. Um, they said that, yeah, you know, this, this drug trafficker should be able to deduct these operating costs, which is a hilarious and absurd ruling. Yeah, yeah, and so Congress immediately then changed that, um, and so we have two eighty E, and so two eighty E has it serves a legitimate purpose, um, but it you know but it, it's it has uh, it, it, the problem is is that it applies to the you know the this le- this legitimate licensed business that we're trying to build here, and so taking that away, um, you know taking that tax burden would be a huge boost to to everybody's balance sheets. And so, yeah. you know, so it's, to one, me, it's one of the things that, you know, until you actually, you know, <laughs> I kind of always think <laughs> about it. It's like you hear about it and you're like, oh, you know, that sounds serious. But until you actually live through it, <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. when you are running a business and you get to the end of the year, I mean, that first year you're in business and you realize what your tax liability is. I mean, it's so important to have good tax lawyers in this industry because yeah. otherwise you're not going to make it. That's you know, right. I mean, it's really hard. And that's it why, is. again, like those costs have to be passed along to the customer. You know, it's one of those things where that's it's like totally they all right. add up. You know, the company can't absorb all of it. That, um, that's exactly right. You know, the, it's it's um, taxes are one of the one of the key reasons why it is so few companies in this industry actually make money. And when I say making yeah. money, I mean like a po- positive net income. You know, not just EBITDA, which is, you know, kind of squirrely when you get into it, because that doesn't take into account the, the tax burden. It's really, it is so hard to make money, uh, you know, have positive, have, make a profit. Yeah. And it's it's because of the state taxes and the local taxes themselves are very high. But then you layer on that burden of 280E and it really eats into your, into your profits. And so... Yeah or destroys your profits. And so that and it, would be, it encourages a lot of people to work both sides. People that's who exactly are, right. Who are trying to come out of the legacy market and be legal. That's it's right. It's just so hard to do it that, and so, and that's one of the reasons why we need to get rid of it so that we don't have to put people in that position. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. And as you say, you know, if we can, if we can then also pass some of that savings onto the customer by reducing prices. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, it also makes it, you know, it, it, it makes it creates more customers. That's exactly right. <laughs> and the legal right. market. It, 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 that's exactly exactly right. It makes the you know the the only thing that the legal the, the the unlicensed illegal market has going for it is that it's cheaper. You know, and so if you can start to eat away at that advantage, um, any bit helps. Yeah. The other thing it would also just to sort of sum up the other thing is that rescheduling uh, Schedule Three does help. A little bit with um, with allowing for um, imp- more testing, federal approval to test um, uh, cannabis for medical purposes. So you know, over time, that should open up, and it does also change the um, the criminal laws that if somebody is uh, you know is arrested at the federal level for you know for 
cannabis possession alike. I believe that it, the, the, the penalties are slightly lower for Schedule 1 versus Schedule 3. But really at heart, the big deal is the 280E changes. It doesn't apply anymore. Um, it, rescheduling doesn't do anything else. Uh, you know, it won't necessarily, um, it doesn't legalize the product. It doesn't, um, it doesn't change, uh, you know, anything directly, but it, but it does change the narrative. Uh, and it, you know, it, again, I think it, it layers on another level of comfort that going back to the Safe Banking Act thing, uh, discussion, you know, maybe it does get more outside businesses comfortable with doing business with cannabis. Um, right. It doesn't eliminate those problems, but it, it, again, it all helps. Yeah. Now, one and thing it also, we, just, oh, it sorry, also just underlines the truth, which yeah. is that yes. cannabis has medical value. You know, That's exactly right. You know, we need that acknowledgement. It's silly that we still have the scheduling because we all know that it does, not just anecdotally, but we have uh, science and research to back that up now and have for a while. So it just, it really mm -hmm. needs to change because of that. That's right. You know? it, that's the right word for it. It is, it's very silly. And when you look at what's in that first group, it's cannabis, heroin, LSD, ecstasy, yeah. and psilocybin, which, uh -huh. you know, a lot of those are natural medicines. I think all of them are, <laughs> except ecstasy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, schedule two is like cocaine and meth, mm -hmm. you know, and Vicodin, things like that. And schedule yeah. three, what's in schedule three? It's like codeine and ketamine. Yeah, yeah that kind uh, of stuff. Steroids. That's what, yeah. So it's still a medical scheduling. Yes. And I guess, you know, cannabis enthusiasts, activists, um, operators, a lot of them aren't happy that it's only going to Schedule 3. They want descheduled altogether. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that would mean? Yeah. You know, I, I am, I guess I, I'm a little bit too much sometimes of a, of a, of a pragmatist and, and pessimist, but I honestly don't think that there is any chance of descheduling and i th so descheduling would remove cannabis altogether from the controlled substances act list or from the list of controlled substances yeah. i don't think that's realistic and the reason is that from a practical perspective i don't see the federal government allowing for the sale production and sale of cannabis without some sort of federal regulation and taxation. It's too easy for this for the federal government to tax it. Um, you know, so why would they give that up? You know, it's exactly. still for, you know, it still has a stigma, you know, and it will, and I think that's going to be there for a long time. But, you know, I think that in people's minds and particularly in the federal government's minds, it's akin to alcohol and tobacco. And, you know, and that's not, it's, it's not, but it's, I, it, I would well, argue there, it does have the, I mean, there is the potential of abuse. There cannabis. is. And, you know, and it's still, it's still a product that's only for adults Yeah, and it's got, you know, it's got medical use, but it's also a recreational product for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, and I don't know that comparing it to alcohol and tobacco is completely wrong. You know, in that regard, I, you know, it, it's very different in a lot of ways, but I don't know that that perspective and I, you know, I realize that I, this is a little bit of heresy in the industry. Um, but I, you know, I don't know that that, that perspective by the federal government is totally 100 percent wrong. Right. And so I don't know. I just don't see any scenario in, in you know, in this universe of the federal government's allowing for the sale without any sort of taxation or regulation, period. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that, you know, I would love to see it descheduled, but it's never going to happen. Yeah. And so I think instead, you know, focusing on, um, you know, on, on, on federal legalization with some, you know, with a, a regulatory scheme around it, where, you know, the for better or for worse, um, you know, in my mind, it would still be better than what we have today. Yes, um, 100%. But, 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 you, you, but there's, an, you know, there's an opportunity now for the industry to be proactively, you know, writing that narrative and, you know, and being involved in what does that look like? 
Um, you know, there are folks out there who are doing that, but you also have folks out there who are trying to write the narrative for their own benefit, like the alcohol distribution industry. Uh, is, and, you know, you know and, sorry, I want to get into that. And I'm yeah, realizing yeah. that this is what always happens. There's so much to talk about. We've got <laughs> like 10 minutes left. Yeah. <laughs> um, so... One thing about, um, before we get into the alcohol distribution model, because I like your conversation about that and where you think that the market could eventually look like if, you know, I would not, I don't want to say if, when we legalize. Um, but in terms of like it going, if, if it gets scheduled to three, I think Mm -hmm. some of the concern that people have is that it is going to put kind of the FDA in more of a hands-on position. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's concerning. Um, and I mean, we've seen the FDA. I mean, they just—I mean, they were the ones who just punted earlier this year. Like they're like, they didn't want to handle CBD. Like they didn't want to give a, a ruling on how that was going to be done. And so, mm-hmm. so they're going to do all of cannabis now, you know. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, is that you see that as a potential concern for the industry? You know, yeah. to have the FDA more involved, I would think so, right? Well, I, you know, I think. There's a lot of speculation around this. Um, The thing to understand is the FDA does have regulatory authority today. You know, cannabis is governed by the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. Um, It's just that the FDA has chosen to do nothing about it, similar to every other branch of government. Mm -hmm. Um, So just, you know, so it wouldn't, if it goes to Schedule 3, that position wouldn't change at all. Um, and the talking with, um, I'm not an FDA lawyer, but I have spoken at length with a lot of FDA and DEA lawyers who are, who are actively involved in working with clients to work with these agencies. So you know, based upon the best sort of advice I could get from them is that the chances of the chances are very low that the FDA is going to do anything different if it goes to Schedule Three, hmm. because it does it wouldn't have the funding to start cracking down and regulating the product. Right, right. Um, and and there, it's just not a priority. What the FDA cares about is if people are making um, claims, you know, claims, yeah, uh, health claims. You know, it's you look at what's happening with um, with, with uh, hemp derived THC. Yes, let's um, talk about that. With, you know, <laughs> the FDA and the DEA are not stopping it. The FDA only gets involved and you know and sends it to uh, uh, you know a letter if the product is making health claims, but they're not stopping that. And, the, the, so the best sort of advice I've gotten or best guidance I've gotten is that is that we probably shouldn't expect anything different in a schedule three. And the other thing too to understand, which is I know a big concern, is that it really wouldn't then if that doesn't happen, then you shouldn't expect any sort of difference in anything else with respect to state medical programs, you know. It's not, we're not going to start needing um, prescriptions. You know, it's not, big pharma is not going to come in because these aren't going to become pharmaceutical products. Mm-hmm. You know, none of the, the chances, because if, in order for the FDA to really be involved, um, it needs, it, it would be, you would need a new drug application for cannabis um, in order to then have a prescription sort of regime for cannabis. Right. And a new drug application costs tens of millions of dollars of research and studies. And yeah. nobody's going to do that. And so yeah. the the best sort of guess, and again, this could this might not happen, but the best guess, and I feel fairly confident about this, is nothing's going to change from a state perspective. None of the, the state programs will change. None of the way that anybody is doing business will change. The FDA is not really going to be involved other than making sure nobody's making any dumb claims. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be the status quo. Do you think it opens up the possibility for interstate commerce somehow? I mean, even because when you get even talking about mm-hmm. all these like, hemp-derived um, 
psychoactive and psychoactive is not the right word, but euphoric yeah. <laughs> cannabinoids yeah. um, that are just, you know, every day a, a brand decides like, hey, we're going to jump in this market. I mean, I can buy really top quality products from California right now. Mm-hmm. Brands that I trust that started in the cannabis space and decided to start getting their brand out nationally by doing a hemp-derived version of the same product right. that is now Delta right. 9. And they are saying it. They're just promoting it now oh, like yeah. on Instagram yeah. and on their newsletter. And, and they know that's competition for, obviously, regulated cannabis companies like in Vermont, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, to have that happen. And so do you see, like, what's going to happen there? <laughs> That's, I, you know, that's a great question. I mean, you know, there's two different things to unpack. Interstate commerce is more about, you know, about non-hemp cannabis. Yes. And the, the, the question of whether you can, every state doesn't, has a prohibition on crossing state lines with, um, with non-hemp cannabis. And, um, you know, I, I don't think the schedule three or, you know, or state banking really does anything about that. What okay. what is holding back states is are two things. One, you know, you've got the state the states themselves, most states don't want they want to protect their their constituents and don't want competition from outside companies. Um, which is the whole problem from a constitutional perspective. But right. that's illegal, know, that right? Aside, Technically. <laughs> yeah. But putting that aside, you know, the, the states like California have have asked the Department of Justice, will you be OK if we start allowing for interstate commerce? Yeah. Are you not going to go after us? That's the risk. That's what they're sort of wondering about. Yeah. And that's not that's sort of separate from the rescheduling process. The 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 hemp derived cannabis, you know, THC problem. And, I you know, problem's the wrong word, but more sort of, you know situation for me it's a problem because it because you anybody can buy these products and there's no adult signature required you can get it shipped and you know somebody under 18 can buy this stuff without an adult signature required and so to me that that's unacceptable Mm -hmm. um and but beyond that yeah i mean it's this is it's all based upon a a read of the 2018 farm bill and a somewhat related case from the federal appellate court, um, that the, and then the FDA doing nothing about it. And it will be the question that's on, a, on everybody's minds is whether, you know, so Congress is revisiting the farm, has to revisit the farm bill every five years. Right. Um, so that's this year. Yes. And it, the deadline was September 30th, and that didn't happen. And oh. so we're waiting to see the farm bill you know, reintroduce. And there's a question of whether the quote unquote loophole that allowed for these, you know, these, these cannabinoids, cannabinoids, thank you, uh, to, you know, uh, to continue. Yeah, to be um, unregulated in a way. That's (laughs) exactly right. That's exactly right. And there's been, um, there've been, there's been at least one hearing uh, in Congress about the issue. Uh, So it's, and the state, Cannabis uh, Regulatory Association, Regulators Association, has put in, um, uh, has has sent in uh, sort of guidance to the to the committee, the the congressional committee that's dealing with this, um, wanting to basically close that loophole. As yeah. so, it is as well as other other trade groups have. So it's on the radar. The question is whether it gets closed. If it gets closed, then I think you quickly see most of this go away. Yeah. Um, well, right now, states are all trying to come up with their own uh, ways to manage it. Um, yeah. Whether they're going to allow those products in, which I don't, I don't know how they stop it. You know, I mean, well, just to give you a quick example, the, in Vermont, mm-hmm. um, they have, they're not allowing, uh, how do I want to say this? It's complicated. So they didn't tell... Uh, companies in Vermont that are making these products that they had to stop making them. Mm-hmm. They told them that they can make them, but they can't sell them to the general public. All those products now have to be sold through a licensed cannabis retail store. Mm. So you can't buy them at like the gas station anymore. Yeah. Um, and as far as 
their ability to ship them out of state. Mm -hmm. I think that they're basically, it's like the trust but verify, you know, <laughs> that they're, they're going to follow the rules that they're only yeah. going to ship into states that allow it, whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah. and so my point that I posed to the, the director of compliance here in Vermont was like, well, if these are legal right now to come in um, and they can't, you're saying that you're going to block any company. Like they went after can the beverage mm -hmm. from California and they said, yeah. no, you can't, you got to stop shipping to companies so that those companies are reselling them. And those companies being companies that are not THC companies, they're just like a, a convenience store or whatever. Right. So I'm like, my question is, well, if I want to buy Rose Los Angeles, Rose Los Angeles was willing to wholesale that mm -hmm. product to a company instead of just ship direct to consumer, could I buy it if I have a retail license, a cannabis retail license yeah. in Vermont, and sell it to our customers? And I think the answer to that question is yes, as far as our state is concerned. Yeah. You know, so every state is, get, you know, which would be very interesting. I mean, basically, that's allowing interstate commerce of Delta 9 THC, but it's hemp derived. We got to get rid of these definitions because it's, it's the same plant. <laughs> When are we going to get there, Mark? It, it's, it's incredibly confusing. <laughs> it is. Um, but, that, but that's what's led to this, this you know, the, the state of play right now. Right. Um, and, it, you know, it creates, it creates confusion for the industry. It creates confusion for the customers. Um, and it's, it's a mess. And, yeah. you know, I, but I, I still am very optimistic in the long run. I think this is yeah, me too. all going in the right direction. It's just right now. Um, it, it's a mess and, it, yeah. and it's, it's very, um, there's a lot of sort of, you know, bright lights on the horizon, but it's going to take us a long time to get there. Yeah. A long, long time to get there. Well, we're going to keep fighting. You know what? We're going to, I wanted to get to your alcohol distribution model, but we're just going to have to have you back on. We're going to have you I, back on when we we get some sort of ruling on the rescheduling. Um, and so for now, we got to end like we do with everybody. And I want to hear about one of your self-care routines right now that you're doing, if you wouldn't mind sharing. My self-care routine. I have recently discovered, uh, I get a lot of headaches. I've always had headaches, um, chronic tension headaches uh, since I was a teenager. Mm. Um and I'm much older than a teenager right now. And, um, but I, as in, I would get, you know, probably 50% of the days uh, of the month, I would have some sort of headache. Wow. I've recently started using THCV um, in, in vape form because it's, it's convenient. Um, and it, it, it's been remarkable. Uh, it is a, because it's got, um, it's, it's, a, it's much less, psychoactive for mm -hmm. me um but it's you still get the benefits and it just it clears my head without um it, but it, it's it's at a low it's a low enough dosage to be completely functional so i wow. don't know i barely notice it and you know but but it gets it clears the fog in my head and i wish i had known about tcb 30 years ago so that is that is something that's new to my self-care routine and has been, um, it, it really has, uh, you know, not that I didn't need it convincing, but it really convinced me personally of just sort of, you know, a great example of how uh, there really are medicinal benefits to this plant. And, you know, it, it's, you know, I, I admit, you know, there are times where people talk about it that, and I roll my eyes a little bit because, you know, Cannabis snobs are, I think, even more insufferable than wine snobs. And I'm a big <laughs> You got them both snob. out there in Napa. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and get, it's just a little ridiculous. But, mm -hmm. but, there, but there's, you know, but there's the basic point is there. And, you know, yes. and it really, I, I think that the, you know, things are changing. And, yeah. and it's for the best. Good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for sharing that and for being on the show today. And uh, yeah, you. we'll be calling you up when we have some more breaking news on the federal level to get your opinion. Excellent. I, I, I enjoyed our chat and uh, I look forward to our next one. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Take
All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax in Motion for producing this show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hi5vt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at hi5vt.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.